I remember running into you outside the Miley Cyrus show, and it was maybe five days after the Paris attacks. And I, I remember you being really emotional about it. Do you remember how it felt to be at that show so soon in the wake after the Paris attacks? Yeah, um, I think that that was in particular a show where it was just the vibe was over-the-top fun and celebratory and just crazy everything. But then looming is like, well, any second someone could walk in and... That's Dana Meyerson. She's a publicist and artist manager, talking about how after Las Vegas, Paris, Orlando, being at a show felt very different. It's a fear that a lot of people live with daily, everywhere. It was like, okay, if someone comes in, like, where would I hide and where would I go and how do I help people? All of a sudden, there's a secondary vibe with this space, which is it could be used as a place of attack. It was sort of the beginning of a shift in the way that I feel now anytime I go into a public space. Now I feel terrified to go to a festival because that seems like such an obvious target. When I went to Lollapalooza last year, post-Vegas, and seeing people with binoculars looking up into the hotel rooms looking for a shooter. So it's this sort of like true nightmare that now exists in real life. And like Dana, when I'm at shows, I wonder, am I safe? Is everyone here safe? But have I ever acted on that concern? No. I haven't written about it or raised money beyond making donations on my own. I haven't organized people or joined an organization. I haven't raised the flag of concern beyond talking with my friends like Dana or other music fans who worry too. For some reason, the music world is slower to take on a lot of causes. I don't have a lot to compare to because the music industry is my industry, but I do know that we say like, oh, well, you know, that's us and not them. Oh, that happened in Paris or oh, that was a gay nightclub. That's a whole different world. That's not me. That's just how things are. This season of Lost Notes has mostly dealt with music's past. But working on these shows, I often wondered about the future. I wondered how music fans will look back at this moment in history. 20 years from now, when they're looking back and listening back, what will they see? Will they find the folks who gave a shit? Or will they just find evidence of ambivalence? Mostly, I thought about music's history with guns and gun violence. In the wake of Nipsey Hussle being shot and murdered, and concerts being sites of mass gun violence, I wanted to know, is this the point where gun control becomes music's issue? I'm Jessica Hopper, and from KCRW, this is Lost Notes. Today, Song of a Gun. Stick around. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's now 14 hours since John Lennon was shot here at the entrance to the Dakota building on West 72nd Street in the center of New York. He's not dead. They're just saying that. John Lennon can't be dead. I started looking back for the first moment of gun control activism in music that I could find, which led me to an unlikely hero, Jan Wenner the problematic, mercurial founder and publisher of Rolling Stone magazine. You knew him personally. Yeah. What was he like? I was warm and one who was very witty, very funny, and very intense. That's Jan Wenner in an interview on the Today Show. On December 7th, 1980, Annie Leibovitz photographed John Lennon and his wife, the artist Yoko Ono, for the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, just hours before John Lennon was shot. You know the photo. It's the one where John's laying naked on the floor with Yoko. He's curled, almost fetal, hugging her, but she's fully clothed. It's a tender portrait, and it's come to symbolize this kind of Edenic before, the fleeting moments before something changed and shifted forever in music. In the wake of Lennon's death, Rolling Stone turned that issue of the magazine almost overnight into a tribute to Lennon's life and legacy. Celebrities, his peers and friends, music writers, fans, they all eulogized Lennon. And some tried to find meaning in his death. John and the Beatles are part of everybody's lives, and they die, and something in you dies. And something about all your friends dies, and, and something about your life is, you know, you feel gone and, and concerned about it. It's, it's the gathering together of a great family. How big you know, is that family? Very big, very big. You know, it's, it's the biggest family. It's the whole, you know, it's really the whole world. Rolling Stone was one of the most culturally significant magazines in America. And John Lennon was Wenner's hero, the hero of much of Wenner's generation. Wenner was someone that people were looking to to explain what it all meant. And in that moment... He was gripped by something no one else was really talking about. The gun. Lennon's death turned Wenner into an activist. By his logic, if handguns weren't so cheap and so easy to get, Lennon would still be alive. So, Wenner assigned Rolling Stone's best investigative reporter, Howard Cohn, to look into the NRA. Wenner was sure that if their readers knew what was really going on and knew the facts about the gun lobby they would take up the cause. They, too, would become gun reform activists, and things would change. Lenin's death would mean something. The logic of it was, we're the music community. I'm the editor of Rolling Stone magazine. We have to react to this. We need to respond to this. We need to show that we have some kind of uh, meaning and impact. Jan Wenner declined to be interviewed for this piece, so I spoke to his biographer, Joe Hagen. He's the author of Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner. I should also note here that Wenner cooperated with Hagen on this book, 
but disavowed it once it was published. This is sort of like a kind of mini revival of what the 60s had supposedly been about in the late 60s, that rock and roll could change things, that rock and roll could stop the war. Then, in 1981, just months after Lennon's death, on the cover of Rolling Stone are just four words, inside the gun lobby. And nestled under the U in the heart of the page is a portrait of John Lennon. At this point, Rolling Stone had a decade-long reputation for running exposés that made a huge cultural impact. Patty Hearst, Karen Silkwood, the Manson murders, Ellen Willis's reporting on a rape trial. But this issue, inside the gun lobby, it was met with a collective shrug. Nothing happened. Nothing changed. Months later, after the attempted assassination of President Reagan, the Brady Bill passed, mandating background checks and waiting periods for handgun purchases— but Wonder wasn't satisfied. He was fired up. So he started a foundation. There was an attempt to kind of like use their adult powers to do something different than just put on a rock concert or just write a song about it. Wonder was one of the most powerful people in American culture in 1981. And he was throwing everything he could at this cause. Still? I think that it was ineffective. The place that rock and roll was at was not in the business, really, of social change. The big power brokers of rock and roll at the time were like Foreigner and like Journey. I mean, this was not come on people now, smile on your brother. And he partnered with a woman whose husband was involved with the uh, police union, I believe, in New York City. And they had done some studies that showed basically if you had rock stars delivering the anti-gun message, you were going to reach a much more limited scope of people, and they weren't the most credible messengers. If police themselves sold the idea of gun control, the conversation would reach more broadly and people would respond better to it. So Winner's Foundation enlists actor Michael Douglas for a PSA targeting police officers, trying to get them to evangelize about the dangers of handgun violence. On November 2nd, Michael and a friend were playing when they discovered a handgun hidden under Michael's parents' bed. Okay. The gun was loaded. These dramatizations are based on real incidents from police files. If you think it can't happen to you, think again. Jan, at the time, was looking for ways to expand his influence. You know, this was a way for him to kind of like have a, a platform and go to Washington and advocate for something that had meaning. Some people mocked Winner's Foundation. Like, after all the people who've been shot down, now you care? I asked the author and critic Greil Marcus, what were the conversations around gun control and music culture in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s? And he said the discussions about violence, they weren't about guns. Guns were seen as the symptom, not the problem. Maybe Lennon's murder reanimated Winner's belief in his old hippie dream. Winner, like a lot of his baby boomer peers in the 1980s, was moved to try to institutionalize his hippie ideals. Advocating for gun control was, for him, on brand. And maybe, like Joe Hagan says, it became something more, something driven by his own self-interest. But still, he did something. By the mid-80s, Pop had moved on ever so slightly. 
from the romantic power ballad fluff of Foreigner and Journey. The mid-80s were very much an era of the multi-day benefit concert, events like Live Aid, charity singles like We Are the World, That's What Friends Are For, Sun City, and Do They Know It's Christmas, as well as the Toto-led Hands Across America. Artists were raising millions of dollars for causes like famine and homelessness and AIDS research. The idea that pop stars had a responsibility to help save the world, that maybe pop music could do good, that was an idea that helped define the decade. But it wasn't until the late 80s that an artist really focused their attention on gun violence. We all agree tonight, all of the speakers have agreed that America has a very serious problem. Not only does America have a very serious problem, but our people have a very serious problem. In 1988, the Stop the Violence movement had a number one rap hit with self-destruction. Stop the Violence was founded by KRS-One the year before, after a fan was shot and killed at one of his concerts. KRS-One had also just lost his best friend, Boogie Down Productions co-founder Scott LaRock, to gun violence. Well, today's topic, self-destruction, it really ain't the rap audience that's bugging. It's one of two suckers. Self-destruction enlisted more than a dozen MCs. Chuck D, Flava Flav, Cool Mo D, and MC Light were just a few. The song is probably the best-known anti-violence moment, and, more specifically, anti-gun violence anthem in contemporary pop. For better or worse, some have called it hip-hop's answer to We Are the World. In the 90s, especially in the wake of Columbine, there were songs about gun violence and American gun culture, from Ani DeFranco, Weezer, Pearl Jam, Sheryl Crow. More recently, Common, Chance the Rapper, Lupe Fiasco, Vic Mensa, all Chicago rappers, have addressed gun violence with songs and activism. And since Las Vegas, there have been some petitions and social media campaigns with big-name artists, as well as a few country superstars coming out in support of reforming gun laws. Still, those are exceptions. Activism around gun control and songs like self-destruction, historically, are pretty rare. And that's not terribly surprising, because as long as there have been guns, there have been songs about guns. The basic role of guns in American popular music is just like the basic role of guns in American popular movies. They're exciting. That's Elijah Wald. He's the author of a dozen books and is a researcher and historian of blues and folk and music from around the world. Just thinking about sort of songs about guns, one of the first things that occurred to me is a song that Pete Seeger used to sing from the American Revolution, The Rifleman of Bennington. The chorus is, for the rifle, for the rifle, in our hands we'll prove no trifle. And, and in between the for the rifle, there's a slapping his banjo to create the sound of gunfire. So, you know, that goes all the way back to the beginning of the United States. There's a long, long tradition of songs, of killers singing songs of regret. And sometimes they were sorry they killed somebody with a gun, and sometimes they were sorry they killed somebody in other ways. But it wasn't about the gun, it was about the killing. 
The very first blues song that was ever recorded by an African-American, by Mamie Smith, Crazy Blues, it's the song that started the whole black recording industry, the race records industry, has the line, I'm going to do like a Chinaman, go and get some hop, get myself a gun and shoot myself a cop. Bessie Smith had a song called Black Mountain Blues talking about the guy who left her, and she said, I'm going to cut him if he stands still and shoot him if he runs. Lord, I'm bound for Black Mountain, me and my razor and gun. You know, the basic way guns show up is the way they still show up. I'm going to shoot him if he stands still and cut him if he runs. During the 60s and 70s, during the era of civil rights and Vietnam, when people were singing about the menace of guns, that menace was about who was holding the gun. Cops, good old boys, soldiers, all symbolic of greater American ills and injustice. But the role guns play in songs is universal. From outlaw country to narco corridos, in blues, rap, classic rock, Jamaican dance hall, guns are tools of power. They're a remedy a method of managing one's problems, be it with the police, rivals, a lover. And, just like the rest of American culture, whether a gun is considered a problem itself depends on whose finger is on the trigger and who it's aimed at. I think a lot of times about how gun ownership is romanticized for some and feared and and criminalized for others, depending on who's doing the looking. And, also, the listening. I called my friend, the writer Hanif Abdurraqib, who was on the show earlier this season. I wanted to ask what he thought about the role of guns in popular music right now. I also think that some of the sharper and more unique and more vital conversations about gun violence are happening outside of the music realm by young people who are leading the charge on the, on the front of activism. And it kind of seems like generationally that is what will define the conversation on gun violence 20 years from now. Looking back for the first time in at least my life, it seems as though the conversation on gun violence is attempting to be led by at least one group of people who are most impacted by it, the people who are in school and afraid. Do you think it's surprising that more artists haven't taken stands about their feelings on guns. I feel like, in particular, young activism that's happening around gun control right now. I don't think it's surprising, but I also think that a lot of the musicians, or some of the musicians in rap right now, grew up or come from a place where a relationship with guns is also a relationship with power, which is also a relationship with to survival. So I think having these ideas around guns being so out of step, perhaps, with young folks who are listening to them isn't wholly surprising. But I also think um, what's been alarming for me to think about in the past couple weeks is that we've had rappers being murdered again, and it feels as though rap might be circling back around to some different considerations around gun violence, or at least a reframing of the way that guns are discussed within the constructs of the music. Do you think pop music in all its forms owes it to its fans to address 
maybe what their fears are or their changing opinions. Do you think pop owes it to its listeners to be a mirror about that? I don't because I don't generally subscribe to the idea that popular music should owe anyone anything, not because I don't believe music should have a message, but because I understand that pop music is part of a large machinery that you know in as we've seen many times is also a chameleon right it will bend to and bow to whatever the public demands and what does the public demand i asked our future judges the youth of today there is not a better way to utilize the um fame and attention that artists have than to talk about the important things. This is Trey. He's 19, a teaching poet and MC in Chicago. What are some of your favorite artists? J. Cole, say Chance the Rapper. Um, Saba, definitely. Because even though they have achieved like a higher um, prestige, they still touch on and address uh, issues that exist not only where they grew up, but all over. He grew up on the city's south side, just a few blocks from Chance the Rapper, and he says he identifies with a lot of Chance's songs. Trey is a big believer in the idea that music can be a vehicle for change and can spur activism. Think about how many uh, songs you hear about different brands of clothing, how people glorify uh, drugs and violence and they hear the many song. We hear these songs, and they're like, "Okay, this is what's cool. This is the standard for whatever uh, model or fashion that you're trying to uphold." And so, if you were just to replace those words with lyrics or work about things that can help people, I guess the songs and the, like the work would be put to a much better use than they are now. Why do you think more artists don't talk about issues? Why do you think, maybe specifically? related to gun control or gun violence. Those things are not popular. And so there's a large chance that that person will lose their audience, will lose their audience, will lose their fame, everything that came with it. I think that if you have a platform, you should use it and you should talk about what's important. Violet Gomez is a 20-year-old student, artist, and activist, and burgeoning music journalist in Chicago. But it's also understandable that an artist like Ariana Grande isn't making an album about maybe her Manchester situation because that's not her brand and maybe it's not what she wants to write about. But when it comes to things like mass shootings or violence in other countries or violence in our own country, um, that's not talked about as much. And... There's definitely that trend of everybody feeling really sad and sorry for that moment that it happens and then forgotten. And it's just this toxic cycle. And I don't think it's necessarily artists who are going to save that issue or break us out of that cycle. But I do think they have a huge part in being able to voice that this is a constant problem and we need to take some kind of action Both Violet and Trey wish the music that they listen to, the artists that they love, better reflected what they believe, the things that concern them. 
But they were cynical about any artist really taking a stand. It's too big a risk. Pop, in particular, is manufactured. It's calculated. If you're a famous artist, talking about issues is either part of your brand or not. And even if it is part of an artist's brand, talking about gun control can be a liability. I wanted to put Violet and Trey's concerns to some artists, including artists who'd been outspoken about gun control or gun ownership. But trying to get anyone to talk, artists, managers, even other journalists, was hard. Managers and publicists would tell me how important they thought this conversation was and thank me for bringing it up, but would continually decline on behalf of the artists they represented. Here's Dana Meyerson again. We'll just sweep it under the rug. There's money to be made, and we don't want to freak people out in thinking, like, maybe if we talk about guns and gun violence and people are aware, they might get afraid. And it's like, they should be afraid. So even if music does OS, let's say, or rather future generations, their concern, is what artists are offering even meaningful Would a we-are-the-world-about-school-shootings change anything when actual kids dying in their classrooms seemingly doesn't? What about all the kids shot in Chicago every year at parks and parties by cops? Would there be a petition or a benefit single for them, too? What can or should we even expect artists to do? Not everything has to be about a specific cause to create a positive change in someone's life. That's Quelle Chris. This spring, he released a record called Guns. On the album, guns are a metaphor, a way of talking about power, the way different things can be weaponized. But he also raps about guns, literally. Brother, I'm your friendly neighbor. I stay on your block. I protect and service. I big game of shot. Ain't no crack that cold. Ain't no safety on locks. Might as well get you one. Procrastinate to get you. I should also mention, Quelle Chris was the only artist I could find who was willing to talk to me about this. He agrees on some points with both Trey and Violet. But he says what people hear in songs they love, even if there's a clear message, you can't control how people receive it or what it means to them. There's times when I make a song... It's not a song about a specific message. It doesn't have any political agenda or social agenda. It's just a song that I enjoyed. And I'll receive a message from someone saying, like, that song gets me up every morning and got me through a depression. Or, you know, every morning I woke up and when I went to do my workout, I played that song and it got me through my... You know what I'm saying? The extremely optimistic and utopian-driven side of me would hope that they would hear that and go, damn, 20 years ago, everyone was fucked up. Like, we don't have that problem anymore. Thank God. Did you read the news? I'm a bit confused. The gun fever is bad. The gun fever. And maybe that's all we can hope for. That the us of right now, that we sound like relics. That we were grappling with a problem that isn't one anymore. And that when those future listeners can listen or look back, They don't hear all of our cynicism or ambivalence, but instead that they can find folks who are at least trying, in whatever imperfect ways that they could, to make sense of this. And that they hear something that feels like a connection. You can know a root chap 
by the way he said it's kept Lord, the gun fever is bad, the gun fever. The Rudy dog is seen, Lord, I don't know what it means. The gun fever is bad, the gun fever. This episode was produced by me and Robin Lynn. I was grateful to be able to make this entire season of Lost Notes alongside such talented producers as Mike Dodge-Weisskopf, Paulina Velasco, and Nick White. I hope you've enjoyed this season of Lost Notes. Now that the full season is out there, go tell your friends. Post about it on your gram. Listen to the whole season. Put it on at a party. Party to these episodes. You can find me and more of my work online at jessicahopper.org or at your local bookstore or library. I'm Jessica Hopper. Thanks for listening.